This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, my name is Kristen Turner, and this is New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, my guest is Dr. Jillian Roger, author of Just One of the Boys, Female to Male Cross-Dressing on the American Variety Stage, published this spring by University of Illinois Press. In her book, Roger introduces the reader to male impersonators, women who dressed and performed as men on stage. Focusing on the period between about 1870 and World War I, Roger traces how the acts these women performed changed over time as ideas about gender and class also changed. Along the way, Roger introduces readers to a fascinating cast of characters who defied social and sexual norms on stage and off. A few women even managed to marry their same-sex partners. But Roger's work is about more than just an obscure theatrical performance practice, because her work illuminates the intersections and connections between class, gender, and sexuality. I'm so glad to welcome you to the podcast, Dr. Roger. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. So how did you get interested in male impersonators? Well, when I was a grad student, um, I was taking a class, and I thought, I'll just write a, a paper on some kind of American entertainment history. And as I was going through, actually, it was, I was thinking about writing a paper on female impersonators because it was for a class on jazz. And I was interested in making connections back to minstrelsy. And of course, female impersonators, at least the very glamorous ones, have their roots in American minstrelsy. So I was looking at scholarship on female impersonators and I came across a picture of an English male impersonator who completely shocked me because I had no idea that such a thing existed in the Victorian period. Um, I'd never imagined, you know, we all have these ideas about what Victorian culture was like, very repressed, very uptight, you know, pianos with, with skirts on to hide their legs and all of the rest of that. And looking at this picture of a woman dressed quite realistically as a man and staring defiantly into the camera, I started thinking I needed to know more about what, she had done? What was her act like? And that really started my research. How widespread was this practice? I mean, and who got to see it sort of set the stage for us so that we can understand um, this phenomenon? Well, yeah, there were never very many um, male impersonators total. It was always a, a fairly rare specialty. I've found probably two to three dozen fairly successful performers over a period of about 40 years, which, you know, that's not, they, they weren't very thick on the ground. Um, in the, the later period, in the early 20th century, there were actually more male impersonators, um, but they were often more, uh, they were more often came, brought in from England. So it came to be thought of this, as this English specialty. And in a very real sense, it has its origins in England. Uh, but the first American male impersonator uh, came to the United States in the 1860s. And this is, in fact, a period in which young women in English music hall had begun um, parodying uh, male, very successful male performers, and they perform both male and female characters as part of their acts. And um, most of the women active in England performed both in male and female character. But when this young woman, Annie Hindle, came to the United States, 
possibly because she was looking for a place where she could make her mark and didn't have to compete in a very crowded marketplace. She decided to perform only in male character, and this then marks the beginning of American male impersonation. And it's um, also all of the male impersonators who began in the United States were older women. They weren't the young teenagers that uh, that were active in England. They tended to be women who had had other um, previous careers on the stage, often dancers, people who were looking to extend their career on the stage, started performing as uh, in male character, and they all modelled themselves on her, uh, which meant that they developed a very different style than they had in England, a much more masculine style, and they performed um, male characters that were very similar to those performed by men, um, particularly in the 1870s and into the 1880s. What happens in the 1880s is um, there's there's two things that happen. First of all, variety was very much affected by a depression in the 1870s. And um, basically whoever could stay on the stage and be successful just kept doing what they were doing and more of it. And they started getting success by um, stressing uh, fashion and stressing songs about leisure, which most of the audience who were working-class men couldn't really afford, stressing songs about alcohol and fine living and fine clothing. And in the 1880s, you start to see the um, active male impersonators stressing that what they are is an ideal of fashionable men. Um, By the 1890s, we have more and more English performers coming in who are performing much younger men and much more feminine men, um, you know, less manly men than the uh, American performers. And after 1900, it's mostly uh, English, the, the stars are mostly English performers, although there were always a handful of young American women who um, tried to make their mark as male impersonators. And mostly what they would do is start very young uh, perform young boys, and then once they got once they got some success, they would transition into female characters because their the critics didn't like seeing them perform in male character. They they wanted to see them be more feminine, and so it became a way b- uh, by which women who weren't maybe they weren't pretty enough, maybe they didn't have uh, a distinctive act, enough act as a woman could make their mark and then gain enough success to be uh, to, to enter um, entertainment um, as, a, say, a soubrette or as some kind of singing f- uh, female character. So that was one question I had. Um, there's certainly a lot of women who play pants roles and operettas in the turn of the century. And I was wondering, how did you make a determination that you thought someone was a male impersonator, someone say like Della Fox, who did perform in early musical comedies and operettas, as opposed to someone who just played pants roles like a Jesse Bartlett Davis, for instance, who's, you know, a contemporary of Della Fox's? How did you draw that line? Well, the, the only reason that Della Fox ends up in my um, book and in my work is that she, um, at, after her career as a soubrette ended, partly because it, it's kind of puzzling why it ended. I think there's some suggestions that she had um, issues with uh, drugs and possibly it also had some kind of breakdown. Um, They kept reporting that she had appendicitis and she had appendicitis on and off for 10 years. So I'm guessing it wasn't really appendicitis. It was just an excuse why she couldn't be on the stage. And at one point she was committed by her brother because she really wasn't doing very well. And when she came back after having been committed, she um, she really could not perform on the stage anymore. She was she was she had really exhausted herself, and um, so what happened was that she started performing in vaudeville, and she took some of the songs that she'd made famous, um, or in um, her dramatic productions, particularly Wang, but also others, 
Um, and she performed them in male costume on the stage. And so she became a male impersonator because she could no longer um, perform as a soubrette. And it really wasn't until closer to the end of her life that she started to think about going back into uh, dramatic performance. But there were also reports that even in vaudeville she wasn't doing so well. Um, There were times that she couldn't, um, you know, that she had to be cancelled by managers. There were times that she wasn't fit to go on the stage. So it became a way of her prolonging her career. And I don't really talk about what she did in musical theatre or musical comedy. I only talk about what she does once she hits the vaudeville stage. Um, She was really an oddity. Most people didn't take the route she took. Um, Mostly I don't discuss people who were in narrative, any kind of narrative theatre. The point of male impersonation is that each song becomes a narrative that allows a male character to live um, and come to life before the audience and um, it, it's not bound by the conventions of, you know, a, a kind of a plot. That brings up another question to me. You're talking about the difference between the sort of narrative forms of theater and then the non-narrative forms that you're interested in. So you start out in variety, and then you talk about the transition to vaudeville. And I just, again, for those of us who might be listening that don't understand those differences, can you just give us a short rundown of this sort of history of these non-narrative forms of popular entertainment and who went to them? Just sort of, you know, give us the the a short short version of that history. So variety emerges as an independent form in the 18 late 1840s, early 1850s, mostly in the context of barrooms. Um, it's a way in which different uh, saloons can distinguish themselves from each other. And what they do is they run, um, they hire someone to be at the piano. They may hire a few professional singers and they basically do sing-alongs. And then this, over a number of years, grows into a more um, formal show. The earliest stage, um, the sing-along stage is known as a free and easy. Um, And you see a lot of of bars in New York City offering those. Uh, By the time we hit the later 1850s, early 1860s, um, they've moved into larger venues. Uh, These are venues with a raised stage. Often, oddly enough, they are old minstrel halls where minstrel companies had taken to the road. Most minstrel companies uh, beginning really in the 1850s spent a lot of their time on the road touring rather than being resident. And when they abandoned their theatres, concert saloons move in there and variety managers start running them and they underwrite their um, the cost of entertainment with, with uh, alcohol sales. Um, they end up in New York City being legislated against partly because people were offended at the idea that young women were working as waitresses in these halls where the audience was primarily male and primarily working-class men, um, and they're selling alcohol to the men in the audience. And, I mean, it must have been horrible to be on the stage because you can imagine the amount of noise with full table service going on while people are trying to entertain on a raised stage. After 1862 in New York City, alcohol is banned, and then we move into a more formal staged period of variety. Um, And, in fact... I, I think that variety elsewhere had always been a little bit more staged than it was in New York. It wasn't as tied to alcohol just because of it's it, it in this period things vary quite greatly by city. And so in Philadelphia it seems always to have been staged. Wasn't big in Boston. It doesn't move away from those three city uh, from New York, the New York Philadelphia region really until the Civil War, and then it spreads out into the Midwest, following soldiers, goes to demobilizing points, and it's always associated with um, alcohol. Um, it's Even if the theatre is um, separate, they, they often still have a bar right next to it. And so 
it comes to be seen as this entertainment for working men. Uh, the audience is almost exclusively male and any woman who's found in the variety hall is assumed to be a prostitute. Really, until the probably late 19th century, um, moral reformers will always refer to the women in the audience as prostitutes, whether they are or not, just because they're in a variety hall. So what happens is that variety sort of develops its own infrastructure after the Civil War. Um, it develops um, uh, touring circuits. You get troops that tour in the same way that minstrelsy had already been doing for several decades. Um, you also have uh, agents starting to represent performers and you get more and more infrastructure to support variety as it develops. And by really by the mid-1880s, it has a very robust uh, infrastructure attached to it. At that point, you start to see people trying to draw a distinction between what they do and what other venues do that may be not quite as respectable. And we start to see a divide in the um, among managers between those people who want to just do what they've always done, which is to uh, deliver wine, women, and song to men, and then those men who want to aspire to a middle-class audience. Um, this development, I mean, you could go back to the late 1860s even, you start to see the beginnings of this among some managers. Um, and by the 1880s, you start to have what they call first-class uh, variety or high-class variety and then variety. By the 1890s, this is getting to be a little hazy and you start to see some people using the word vaudeville to distinguish um, high-class variety from all other forms of variety. And by the time you get into the early 20th century, the, the traditional variety or the variety that offers wine, women and song to a male audience has come to be known as burlesque, which we tend to associate with stripping. And the word variety has all but disappeared and everybody uses the word vaudeville, which is just to refer to sort of respectable decent, it doesn't have, um, it, it's not meant to titillate kind of entertainment. I mean, that's overly simple because there's always an element, I mean, there's always an element of just straight up entertainment in the sexualized form and there's always hints at sexuality in the respectable form but there are very much limits to how far you can go. The um, aim with the, the um respectable forms of variety is that you should be able to take your wife and your daughters to a performance and not be embarrassed to have them there. Um, the difference between variety and vaudeville also relies on business models. Um, we tend to think of vaudeville as being associated with uh, Benjamin Franklin Keith and uh, Edward Olby, and those uh, managers were people who really developed a sort of industrial model for vaudeville that the performers were essentially interchangeable with each other. They centralized the booking process. They sought to basically monopolize uh, the entire industry and to be able to figure out ways to make money on all aspects of, of touring and presenting a show. And they managed to make their booking, they basically formed their own booking, um, so, uh, central booking office that then booked acts for all of the other circuits, including those that were not their own. And so that they managed to make, make money on absolutely everything. They were shaving percentages at all levels. The major difference is really business model and its relationship to the performer. Um, the earlier performers basically were, it was much more cooperative. I like to think of variety as being more artisanal and um, vaudeville being more industrial, if that makes any sense at all. No, actually, that makes perfect sense. When when we think about even how business was evolving in this time period, you can see how the monopolies like vaudeville are just reflecting what was going on in other aspects of business where variety has this sort of more old-fashioned kind of business model. I think that makes perfect sense. 
Um, so one of the things I love about this book, and there are many things, but I love how, on the one hand, it's sort of a history of male impersonators and kind of a history of variety in vaudeville. And you're sort of, it's just a theatrical history looking at this one type of performance practice, which, um, as you say, what is most people have never even heard of. As you said, you hadn't heard of it before you you uh, started working on it. And I had never heard of it until I encountered your work. <laughs> so, um, But then there's this other whole part of the book, which seems to me to be um, just as important, maybe more so, and that is talking about working class culture, talking about gender roles, particularly as it relates to the working class instead of the middle class, since so much scholarship is tilted toward middle class ideas. It's so great to have that working class um, viewpoint or lens represented. And then also, of course, a history of of sexuality and the ways that people thought about sexuality in America in this 19th century period. And um, so there's a lot of questions I have about that, but maybe we can just start with the fact that today we like to label people, you know, you're you're a transgender, you're asexual, you're homosexual, you're a lesbian, whatever those labels are. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what to do, you know, do those labels even apply to people living in the 19th century? Are the performers you're looking at, did they think of the, you know, how did, do you have any idea of how they thought about themselves as sexual beings or was, or was that just not even a part of, of, of how people conceived of themselves at that time period? Well, I think it was actually part of how they conceived of themselves. They didn't use the labels we use. Um, And even those performers that I, I'm absolutely certain had sex with, um, for example, Annie Hindle. I am certain she had sex with women. There's, um, she's left some poetry behind that, that indicates she published poetry in the New York Clipper and it was always in a female voice and it was often declaring love and talking about intimacy in very, I mean, you know, discreet ways but still intimacy um, with women and it was always addressed to a woman. So I have little doubt that she knew how to make love to a woman. Is she a lesbian? I can't use that word for her, partly because even for working class lesbians, until late in the 20th century, they wouldn't use that word for themselves. They might refer to themselves as butchers and femmes. They might, if they were African-American, use the word bulldagger to refer to the sort of um, the what we would think of as a butcher, more masculine woman. They would not say I'm a lesbian because lesbian was something that those middle class women were. Um, so in the 19th century, and in the 19th century it gets complicated because it's what did the audience know how did the audience think about this versus how did the um, the world of theatre think about it? All evidence I have is that the people in the- what I think of as theatre world, they didn't really care. They didn't care what you did as long as you didn't, A, cause too much scandal or, B, skip a performance. So as long as you were regular, you showed up, your audience loved you, and you didn't, I mean, you didn't get the show closed down because someone declared you to be indecent and therefore the authorities would step in and close the show down, you could do pretty much anything you liked. Uh, you, they, I will tell you that they weren't terribly keen on performers who beat their wives. I know this because, for ex- uh, example, Annie Hindle was married to a male performer but w- when she first came to the United States. Very shortly after she arrived, she married a man who um, was, by all accounts, very charming and also a violent bully. And there's lots of reports on this guy's behavior um, that give you a sense that he wasn't a particularly nice person. And later on, she claimed that he had blacked both of her eyes within the first couple of weeks and that they they split up. Well, I can actually follow, by following their careers, he left the East Coast within, I mean, days of of her splitting off. I mean, you know, within a couple of weeks, I don't find him at all, which suggests to me that after he was violent towards her, people on the stage said, we don't want to hire you. 
we don't like you, you're not a nice person, go away. And they canceled his bookings and they rallied around her because she continued to have bookings unbroken for the next several years. And he went to the West Coast and had to start over over there. So clearly there's behavior within intimate partnerships that's not acceptable to these to, to the wider theater world, but they don't really care who you're having intimate partnerships with. They will occasionally, however, express shock, and they express shock when the audience is shocked to find out something happens. And I see it as a sort of a performance of what's expected in order to make sure they don't alienate their audience, but they all, they didn't really care that much, if that makes any sense. So, you know, for example, we've got, I've found one theatre, uh, a circus performer who was an acrobat who'd been performing. He was dressed as a young woman when he was a little boy because, because, Essentially, girls doing what boys, the kind of feats that boys do, are much more thrilling to watch than boys. You know, like a girl being do, being a daredevil is a much more thrilling thing in this period because the audience knows for certain that women can't do that. So that when women do the impossible, they're performing a kind of magic that makes them way more attractive to their audience. So if... Um, a circus didn't have young women, for example, to dance on the backs of horses or to perform acrobatic feats. They would dress young boys in that role. And usually by the time the boys got into their teens and puberty really hit, they would transition back into being a male performer and the girl would disappear. And another girl, much younger girl, would appear, also a, ma- a young boy in female dress. This one performer stayed in female character well into his 20s and he was a star in the circus but he kept getting busted. Once he got into his 20s, there kept being these rumours that Ella Zoyara is really a man and at every single town um, the circus manager had to perform this kind of ritual shock, horror, I have been misled, I had no idea even though he had done it at the previous town and the previous town and the previous town. And at that point, Ella Zoyara had to disappear and he became Omar Kingsley and he married a fellow performer and they went off and performed together for a number of years. So it's it's the kind of ritual performance of shock when it's expected because the audience is offended, because the audience is shocked and you can't look as though you have different values than your audience. Um, now, in terms of sexuality, uh, most of the women who performed in male character had intimate relations with men, as far as I can tell. Um, they, Many of them were married. Many of them had performing partnerships with men. And it's just one or two I have found who had... Um, long-standing or, or had rather prominent affairs with women. And then it was played for shock and amusement, often in newspapers like the Police Gazette, which, you know, it was for a male audience. It could pretend that it was very, very sophisticated. They used to um, target uh actresses and singers and people like opera singers, people much loved by an upper middle class audience or an upper class audience and accuse them of all sorts of perversions in order to say, look, the upper class audience who want to tell us that we're, you know, we're beneath contempt, look at them, look at who they they worship these sort of perverted Europeans. So, for example, the term lesbian was used in the Police Gazette. In fact, I found it before I found in the Police Gazette at a date before I found it in medical lit- uh, literature, and it was used um, in relation to the famous Swedish opera singer Christine Nilsson, who was. Um, referred to as the lyric lesbian and the Swedish Sappho. And she was often, uh, she was accused by the Police Gazette on a number of occasions of overwhelming her female fans with affection. She was also accused of killing her husband. I mean, you know, they would basically accuse her of anything that would make her look bad. 
Um, so clearly the idea of uh, female affection was widespread and it was probably um, the kind of thing that we think, you know, even now it's it's a key element of pornography. Um, those kinds of elements had come out really relatively early in the 19th century in, in sort of sophisticated literature, but they were beginning to enter the sort of popular culture in the second half of the 19th century, but it wasn't something they thought that working-class women did. So when Annie Hindle uh, got married to her dresser in the mid-1880s, the Police Gazette was absolutely inarticulate describing that relationship. It could not believe that a working-class woman would do such a thing, and they basically declared that she was a man and that she had been defrauding her audience for 20-some years because it was easier to see her as a man than it was to believe that she would take male privilege. So you can see it's a much more complicated situation than it is, well, actually it's complicated now. It's always a complicated situation. It's just we can't understand it through the kinds of ways that we think of ourselves um, because I don't know that first and foremost these, these uh, people were sexual. You know, that wasn't necessarily the primary part of their um, identity. Often it was that they were... Um, that they wanted to be autonomous, that they wanted to be on the stage, that, you know, that the struggle to be autonomous was much greater in that period for all women um, who didn't want to get married, who didn't want to have male patronage. And I'm a, I have to assume that there, were, there was a sort of a female support system that they, they developed and that sometimes there were women who liked to have sex with each other as part of that but I don't know how they thought about it. The closest I've managed to get is Annie Hindle's poetry, which is very sentimental. Um, you know, it's very sweet. Well, Annie Hindle, I think, is one of the most interesting characters of the really many interesting women that you talk about and give biographies for. Um, and I have to say, I was just dumbfounded to see that she I don't know that I would say she openly married another woman, but somehow well, she that openly worked. married another woman. Okay. So she openly married another woman. I, I am still trying to understand how that happened because of course we in just having gone through in the last 10, 15 years the whole struggle for same sex marriage here in the United States again, you know, it people I think assumed that this was the first and only time this has ever happened, but yet you have found that example and one other, at least one other of women marrying each other. Can you talk a little bit, I mean, what was going on there? How were they allowed to do that? And, um, you know, I don't know. I just don't even, I'm trying to conceptualize how to, to fit that into the narrative that we have sort of grown up with or grown up with here in the U.S. about, about the um, yeah, I don't history think they, of marriage. They were definitely not allowed to do it, but I don't think she took non-theater world's values all that seriously. So if she was told she was not, as a woman, allowed to make family for herself, because the other thing I think is important to, to, to oh, an important way of understanding Annie Hindle is that she was an immigrant. She was someone who came here with just her mother, and her mother, from what little we know about her, may not even have been her birth mother, but rather have been someone who adopted her, maybe formally, maybe maybe informally, um, and then came with her to the United States. And when she was out on the road, she was quite literally alone. So what I see early on is her trying to make family for herself, to build a support system for herself. Um, the first person she tries to do this with is Charles Vivian, who is the man who beat her. And after that marriage fell to pieces, she didn't seem to want to have any association or, or she wanted to minimize her association with men. So I see her changing um, uh, agents frequently. So she doesn't stay, she's not loyal to any given agent. She's happy to perform for male, um, male managers, but she really is kind of driving her own career. And I found after her marriage to um, 
Charles Vivian dissolved. And that was never, there was never a divorce. They sort of just split up and agreed not to talk about it, which is a very working class um, kind of way to do it because divorce cost money and you had to be resident in a place for, um, you know, for a period of time, which is impossible for actors. So they would just, they would just dissolve. They would head in different directions. And the only way you know if it's uh, agreeable to both parties in the, in the uh, theatrical world is if there was a notice printed in the newspaper that so-and-so had remarried, usually if it wasn't agreeable, within a couple of weeks his ex-wife would write in and say, he can't possibly have been married, uh, remarried or, or, or he can't possibly have married because I'm married to him. And then my suspicion is that they would work it out with some kind of payment to make her go away uh, because it was easier to do it informally that way than it was to do it legally. Uh, And there was no way, I mean, you know, how do you check if someone got married in a different state when there's no computers, there's no way to look it up. You say you're single, you're single. So I've actually found four marriages for Annie Hindle to women. The first was to a jig dancer, which doesn't seem to have lasted very long. I'm not, I don't know anything about it except that I do know the name of the dancer. The next year she married again. Um, She married someone who was a young female singer who appears, you know, I used to like this woman and then after looking at her, her relationships with basically a series of relationships, I began to think that she was really just looking to benefit herself um, in her intimate, you know, with her her partnerships. So she worked with Annie Hindle for a number of months. She learned her basically how to be on the stage. They were performing separately but developing an act together and then they got married in Washington, D.C., in, on both occasions, my suspicion is Annie Hindle put left her stage costume on and went into the um, and got a marriage license, and she was good. She looked like a man, and in that period, if you were in pants, if you had short hair, you were a man because women did not wear pants. So she just dressed as a man. She took male privilege. She made a family for herself by marrying uh, a series of women and and uh, never, as far as I can tell, was never intimately connected to a man for the rest of her life. Um, and it, it took a couple of tries. She didn't get the first two right. But when she met Annie Ryan, who's the woman she married in Grand Rapids in the mid-1880s, that marriage lasted five or six years until Annie Ryan died. Um we also, within a year of that uh, that marriage ending, she had married again and I found some record that the two women appeared on the stage and that her fourth wife took her name so that you see, uh, you see records for Annie and Louise Hendel so that the, the young woman that she married in the 1890s appears to have been quite fond of her and um, wanting to perform with her, make family with her, and marriage was the way that they did it. So you bring up the fact that if she looked like a man, then they were, a man, you know, then Annie Hendel was a man as far as, as people were concerned. So when people went to these acts and saw Annie Hendel or some of the later people you talk about on stage, like Avesta Tilly or someone, I mean, was it... Were they titillated by, ooh, look at all this, they're, you know, breaking these gender boundaries, I can't believe they're dressed as a man? Or were they just, were they thinking about it as I'm seeing a man on stage? You know, you know what I'm saying? I'm just wondering, how did they perceive the people that they were seeing from the audience perspective? The earliest performers, the performers acted in really from Annie Hindle into the through the 1870s were attracted to their audience because they were doing the impossible. So in a very real sense, she is not unlike an, a female acrobat who is performing uh, 
feats of strength or um, or daring that are thought to be impossible for a woman. And often in the reviews they will say we couldn't, uh, both for Annie Hindle and Ella Wesner, they would say we can't, couldn't believe that this was a woman, that she's so much like a man. She's like the best of male performers. And they, they saw it as a very... Um, a very attractive thing because of its magical quality. Once we get into the early 20th century, things really start to change. And it's primarily at first because of um, the push for feminism, because um, the the suffrage movement had really sort of, um, I mean, it had, it had taken a break for the Civil War and it really took until the 18 mid 1870s it was kind of struggling to get back up on its feet and it did took its final pushes towards female suffrage really from the 1890s into the early 20th century and so you start to see this bias against mannish women against women who want to take male privilege partly because um men are really nervous about this and it's actually not I don't know how the, the I think the upper class men could afford to be kind of um, uh, indulgent of their women who wanted to vote. But um, the new middle class who were in, say, clerical positions, they couldn't be indulgent because they were often competing with women, um, trying to make sure that they didn't lose their jobs. Uh, for example, if you worked in department stores, there were whole departments where men couldn't get a job and they wanted to be professional. They wanted to, they wanted to value their job and it was hard when they were seen as being no different than a woman because there were more and more women coming into the job. So we have the sort of professions that come to be gendered and how do men in them feel about it uh, and feel about the loss of status as women start to come in to these uh, careers. So, um, you know, this is what's really driving the hostility towards uh, women who want to be autonomous or women who want to be independent is this fear of what happens when the whole world is flooded with women and I'm not allowed to compete with a woman because if I lose, I'm I'm way less of a man than I think I am. Um, And so you see male impersonators really getting caught by that and having to kind of shape their acts in ways that first reassure their audience that they're a good woman and then that they can make a character. So, for example, Vesta Tilly had always been had a more feminine um, performance style, partly because she was English and the English spent part of their year on the stage performing in pantomime, uh, performing in pants roles where they had to be more feminine. And so that spilled across into their musical acts. And when she came here, she discovered that the men in the audience didn't want to see themselves. In England, she she performed clerks. She performed regular sort of lower middle class men. Um, And when she came to the United States and performed, those songs did not land well with the audience. And she pretty quickly adapted and started singing very old uh, repertory from the 1870s that depicted upper class men. And the middle class men of the of the late 19th century, early 20th century, loved that because they saw it as a model of how to behave. They did not see the humour in it. And so uh, Vesta Tilly was performing this kind of balancing act where she had to constantly reassure her audience, I'm a good woman, I'm married, I'm, you know, I would love to be the kind of woman who stayed at home, but... I have this restless spirit that forces me to be on the stage. And, I mean, this is coming, this kind of um, uh, narrative isn't coming just from male impersonators. There are dozens and dozens of interviews with actresses from this period, Uh, actresses in legitimate theatre, very well-known actresses who are all trying to justify their autonomy by saying, look, women, um, if they can be at home, um, if that that's a much better role for them, but unfortunately, I am cursed with this restless spirit, and so I'm, I'm driven to be on the stage. I wish I could be domestic, and so you sort of see them uh, telling women be domestic in order that they can get their 
starring role on the stage and have their career and not threaten men. So male impersonators really end up being caught by that. Um, They also get caught by the fact that in the early 20th century, vaudeville comes to be, they start to look for singular personalities so that the people on the stage are thought to be performing themselves all the time. There's no kind of idea that this is a character, not really them. So if you're performing a man, what does that say about who you really are? And once we get into the 1920s, you see people really, they start to, to, they never have to ban male impersonation in this country. It just becomes distasteful to the performers. And you get fewer and fewer young women entering the um, taking on this specialty and the ones who do do it when they're very young say I have you know I just have this natural exuberance I have no idea what I'm doing I'm told I'm very realistic by the time they get into their 20s they're performing as women and they could say I grew out of that and I'm a proper healthy woman now nothing wrong with me so it becomes you actually get to see shifting gender roles and shifting gender expectations if you track through uh, performance ideals from the 1870s through into the 1920s, you can see uh, the act being adapted to accommodate shifts in both gender and class. Well, it's it's fascinating to me that at the moment that middle class women are sort of getting more freedom, and even if there's, of course, a lot of resistance to suffrage, they are working more, they are getting more education, they do get the vote, that sort of thing. You have working class women who seem to have at least some areas actually closed off to them at the same time for basically the same reason that middle-class women are getting greater freedom. It's quite a, an irony of history that, that these class differences really sort of flip the uh, gender role issues on their heads because, um, you know, because of this economic competition. That's always happened. I mean, it happens with second wave as well. So that, you know, working-class women look at at second wave feminists and say, what do you mean? No one was forcing you to stay at home because they've always been in the, in the workplace. Um, And in fact, often what happens is that the gains, um, middle-class women gain access to the, to the public sphere by having uh, really at the expense of working class women um, and the working class generally. So for example, Actresses who were always and ballet dancers and you know the sort of entertainers were always on really part of the working class, um, and the people at the lowest end of that have to be sort of segregated into vice districts, which makes it much much more dangerous for them, and it makes what they do much much less respectable than it had been. So it sort of stigmatizes it socially, and. They do this in order that the urban landscape can be safe for women so that clearly they're not thinking of the women who are already working, the women who are already out there and have long been out there as women because they're in the public sphere, therefore they're not women because women are only the respectable people who are coming, who are now venturing out of the domestic sphere. So this is, I think in a lot of ways, this is why the middle class history is so rich because they've we've, they've left a lot more record. We have, a, a, at least in the advice books, we're pretty sure that they didn't follow all that advice, but we have a lot, of, a lot more sense for the ideals. We don't really know that much about what working class women's lives were like because they're so scant, they're, there's really a scant record for them. And you kind of have to piece it together through what little bits you can find Um, and when you can find their own words or you can find songs that they sang that reflect the expectations of a working-class audience, you've kind of got to piece it together um, and get a sense of how they conceived of their world and how that has to shift as the sort of larger worldview is uh, placing pressure on them. Well, that... um brings up something that I was thinking about as I was, I really appreciated in the book, you were very um, 
open about what sort of sources you were using and explaining these various media outlets that you were really leaning on for a lot of your information. Can you talk a little bit about the sort of archival challenges to working on the working class and working on variety and, and that sort of thing, as opposed to if you were working on uh, entertainments that were more um, targeted to middle or upper class people? Yeah, partly it's that um, there's not a lot of um, – you kind of have to work on fragments. So what I've done is build um, a sense of what the performance was like by quite literally going through – I don't even know how many years of the New York Clipper, which is the trade newspaper, and essentially scanning through the Clipper just to get a sense of who's performing what. So I'm looking at pretty much everyone, although my focus was always on um, the male male impersonators whose names I knew. But I always knew that there might be others out there, so I had to kind of read everything. Um, and then I would just take notes of it. And over a, a period of years, I got a sense of what is the ideal for this performance style. You do it not through a single review, but rather through dozens and dozens and dozens of reviews. And when you get a sense of the performer being super good because they describe them in more detail or super bad because they criticize the things that went wrong. And in between those two extremes, you get a sense of what the standard was that makes any sense at all. Beyond, uh, after that, I essentially then have to go out and um, try and find sheet music associated with people. I have to look and see, you know, because there's maybe a couple dozen songs. I mean, there's very little material that survives. So you have to kind of look and see what kinds of songs they were singing now, are there similar songs that do similar work that I think they could have performed? Um, you know, so I'm, I'm kind of half the time guessing, half the time making it up. Well, not really making I'm footnoting it, but I'm having to use a, a great deal of intuition, um, looking for patterns and looking for similar kinds of things that I can't say for certain, but they definitely match with what I can say for certain. To get to the audience, um, essentially I rely a lot on uh, working on newspapers that, re- that cater to working class men. It's really hard to get at working class women, partly because they didn't leave a lot of records. So that I don't know if they read the New York Herald. I don't think that they were big readers of the Police Gazette, National Police Gazette which is a um, very highly, I mean, I love the, if you, I don't know if you've ever seen the Police Gazette. It's a, it's a newspaper with lots of pictures, which pretty much means that if you have, if you don't have a whole lot of literacy, you can still read it because you can look at the pictures. It has a semi-naked burlesque queen on page three. It has lots of stories about upper middle class women who are running rampant through the landscape and misbehaving and, and this is to make their their um their fathers and their husbands look bad, obviously. Uh it has lots of gossip about the the darlings of the upper middle class and the upper class um actors, actresses and all of this their misbehavior. They'll occasionally champion uh, a theater manager a variety manager that they feel is not forgetting where he came from. So you get a sense if you read enough um, issues of this, and I've read probably 20 or 30 years solid of the Police Gazette, um, you get a sense of class cohesion being important, um, of, you know, you're supposed to succeed, but you're not supposed to forget where you came from. So they always look to the manager, Tony Pasta, as one of the real true champions because he is really successful, but he never forgets where he came from and he never forgets the little man. And so that they really love him, even as they'll sometimes criticize other people for being, for getting above themselves. Um, so if you read songs against newspaper commentary against you if you read them all against each other you can start to feel 
the parameters of the culture. You can start to get a sense of what, because the things match up. So that the same kind of working class cohesion comes through songs where they'll often say, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget the, the people you leave behind who are not as successful as you. Um, you know, that wealth isn't everything. All of these messages come through songs and they're also echoed in the newspapers. And so that you can get a sense of these values emerging from these sources if you read them against each other. Well, that brings up one last question that I have about this. And of course, I could go on forever, but uh, we won't. Um, but what exactly did they always sing? I guess I'm wondering what is the like, what were these acts like? Um, did they dance? Did they do magic tricks too? Or was it strictly singing? And then also, what does it mean to be a feminine masculine uh, male impersonator you know you've taught used that term several times i'm just wondering how how does one be a feminine male impersonator how does that work right so um what they did on the stage and it depends on what period you're talking about in the 1870s there as far as i can tell acts could last 20 minutes maybe even longer because they sang four or five songs and they sometimes had up to three encores. So, you know, if you think it's, if it's four minutes a song and that's pretty fast, that's already getting you to 20 minutes without the, without the encores. Um, they, the performers had to perform, basically do a quick change of costume um, in the wings of the stage in between, they they were sometimes criticized if, for example, they left the same pair of pants on for two songs in a row. So they completely changed into a different costume as they go, um, you know, as they move from song to song. So they they would perform a complete change of costumes in between songs, um, and they did that had to do that very very fast. Um, they depending on their skills. So, for example, Ella Wesner had been a ballet dancer for 20 years before she became a male impersonator. She was often noted as um, performing a dance, sometimes as an encore. My suspicion is that she did that also because she had um, a lot of upper respiratory infections and problems. She was often noted as being sick, uh, sometimes hoarse. Um, and so what would happen is that in order to spare her voice, she would perform a dance and the audience loved it and all was good. So that, you know, it, it allowed her to kind of uh, um, ma- save some of her, her singing voice. Now, in terms of uh, singing, the act was a mixture of singing and speaking. So they might start speaking their way through the lyrics, occasionally lapse into um, sung song or, or more melodic song. So it's kind of a mixture of heightened speech and song. Sometimes the song would just stop and they would um, insert monologues and commentary and comedy into the middle of the song, which makes the idea of a four-minute song kind of laughable, right? Um, and they, they, it was a very flexible sort of base for a comedy routine. By the time we get to the end of the twenty uh, end of the nineteenth century, this is not the case anymore. They are performing fewer songs. They're not supposed to be performing as much interpolated commentary, as much comedy, because there is a sort of distaste for women talking directly to the audience. This is um, this happens as the um, working class starts to basically identify the white. English-speaking, native-born working class is identifying with the lower middle class at that point. And women who seem to belong to that category can no longer perform the same kinds of broad comedy than they could earlier. Ethnic women can. And so we start to see female comedians from as early as the mid-1880s um, and they could get away with that because they were Irish or they were Jewish and it didn't matter because they they weren't thought of as white. Um, but the women who were thought of as white, including most of these male impersonators, had to stay much closer to female performance style from really, say, the 1890s onwards, which means 
they were now singing the song completely. They were no longer talking. They might do a little dance as a, um, you know, in between um, verses. There's fewer encores because managers needing to keep the show going don't like encores because encores interrupt the show. So we see the show becomes a lot more sort of consolidated. Everybody moves on and off in a much more orderly fashion. And a lot of the kind of improvisatory um, elements of the performance style for male impersonators get cut out because it's no longer seen as decent. And by the, really by the time we get to the 1900s, they're very little different than uh, women singing in female character. The major difference is that they're wearing, they're we- they're wearing male clothing. And um, given how many of them after 1910 are performing young boys, there really is not that much difference between, um, you know, a, a woman singing a female song versus a woman singing a male song. They're, they're almost indistinguishable from each other except for the costume. So they were singing in a female range they were not singing in say a tenor well range. the earliest performers and it's kind of hard to tell i mean you can tell they they'll sometimes say that the voices were good or not good annie hindle is described as a mezzo soprano um or an alto ella wesner surprise is also um described as a mezzo uh, my suspicion is her voice got lower over time because it seems to have been damaged you know, I, because she was sick so often and because she performed sick so often I wouldn't be surprised if it didn't drop a little over the years um, but beyond those two I can't talk I, I really don't know about any of the earlier uh, ranges the English performers seem to either have been mezzo or soprano so for example Example, Bessie Bonehill, who was an English performer, was described as a mezzo, but I suspect a higher mezzo who sang most of the way, uh, most of the time. Vesta Tilly was a soprano. Um, Hedy uh, King was a soprano. The only mezzo in the 20th century was Ella Shields, and she actually even speaks her songs. The reason I think she does that is that she was an American and that she had seen Ella Wesner perform when she was a child, and she modelled herself on her me- on the memory of a much earlier American male impersonator. And um, so she's sort of like the last link to the American style um, in the early 20th century. Actually, there is one more link. The last link to the American style of male impersonation actually is Julie Andrews because Julie Andrews saw Ella Wesner. She performed, no, sorry, she, she performed on the same stage as Ella Shields in the early 20th century. And if you watch her in Victor Victoria, you can actually see her doing a lot of the same physical tricks in terms of playing with cuffs and uh, uh, physical gestures that you can see in Ella Shields' performance style. So it's kind of a nice uh, um, nice thing that Ella Wesner's performance style has made it all the way into the late 20th century through that, that connection uh, between... Ella, uh, Ella Shields and Ella Wesner and then Ella Shields and um, Julie Andrews at the other end so that we can see some glimpses of that 19th century style. Well, I love that we can end on Julie Andrews. <laughs> That's a great way to end this conversation. And I love that, as you said, that we can still see echoes of this performance practice so many years later. And just to end our um interview to and looking forward at your new work I know you've been on sabbatical what are you working on now that we can look forward to well um, I'm not sure when it's going to happen but my the next project I want to do is to try and make sense of 20th century vaudeville which you know is um, the hist- let's just say that the histories that are written don't match with the primary documents very well so that if you look at if you look at primary source materials and you read the history you realize that there's a lot missing in the written history partly because it's so complicated it's overwhelming and so what i'm hoping to do is to show ways that 
essentially to draw, uh, looking for continuities from the 19th century rather than insisting that vaudeville was something completely new, never seen before, that did everything different to the 19th century, which is tends to be how it's depicted in um, the histories as they're written now. I'm going to say what survives, what business practices survive, how do they change? And I'm hoping to be to depict variety as continuing and vaudeville as being one strand of that so that I can so that we can begin to understand how vaudeville burlesque musical comedy and all of those uh, even review connect with each other in the early 20th century because right now uh, as uh, you know um if you look at the the newspapers from this period it seems like a very lively scene but you have no sense of how it operated and that's my next challenge I think well that is a big challenge as you know I work on that same sort of thing and it's it's crazy how much was going on and how little scholarship there really is on it I mean it's especially on vaudeville it's really I was shocked when I started trying to find uh, literature on this period. You know, you can find plenty on opera, for instance, but forget about it for musical theater and vaudeville. So I am so happy that you are uh, turning your attention to the 20th century because we certainly need some help. (laughs) So um, thank you so much for um, interviewing with me. And it was great to talk to you about this book and good luck into the future. 